Welcome to FRT, the IIF's podcast at the intersection of finance, regulation, and technology. I'm Jessica Renier, Managing Director of the Digital Finance Team here at the IIF. I'm here with Ronit Ghosh. Ronit is Head of Fintech and Digital at City Global Insights and leads much of City's exciting work pertinent to DeFi and specifically the metaverse. Welcome, Ronit. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start today by telling us a little bit about your role at City and, and what you've been working on? Sure. So I've been at City almost 25 years. About a year ago, we set up this new team. It's called Future Finance. So it's pretty much what it says on the can. Anything to do with the future of finance, money, technology, fintech, crypto, DeFi falls into my team's remit. And yeah, we're horizon scanners. Call it thought leadership. Sounds a bit fancy, but that's what we do. Horizon scanning sounds sounds awesome to me. So with that, let's start with a few of the basics on, on, on DeFi just to help our listeners get grounded. Sure, sure. So the way to think about it, if you zoom out to like 30,000 feet, most of finance that we've been used to for the last 700 years anyway, since the Industrial Revolution, has been centralized finance, sometimes pejoratively called TradFi or traditional finance. Centralized finance, so think about all the banks, you know, the one I work for, most of the banks that you have in, particularly in the US or in Western Europe, they were founded in the late 1700s or the 1800s. Now, what happened in that time period? Industrialization. So we're coming off farms, we're moving from an agricultural society to an industrial society. Big cities, big towns, manufacturing. And the banks were there to provide capital, take money from savers to borrowers. And these institutions grew up famously with marble pillars. And we're in D.C. today. I'm in, visiting you guys in D.C. And, you know, this town is full of marble pillars. And banks had marble pillars, too, because it was a sign of power, prestige. So if you were a centralized institution, that's how you basically showed you were important. Now, DeFi is different. It's about the Internet. And the Internet was supposed to be decentralized. It's all of us as individuals interacting with each other. And it's the same idea in DeFi. I mean, Lugging too much on the Bitcoin rabbit hole. I mean, Bitcoin white paper, 08, sort of 09. That was talking about P2P cash. Basically moving digital money person to person. And DeFi is simply that taken to the nth degree. It's about you and me, Jessica, just interacting without necessarily having a big institution involved. That's the pure theory. Obviously, in practice, there are benefits of institutions or at least organizations. Now, the internet or in, in sort of DeFi world, the native organization, there's a DAO. And DAO stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. I, it's not a stockholder company. It's not a PLC. It's not controlled by a board or shareholders. It's controlled by the community uh, that's in the DAO. And they vote. And the DAO is the organizing principle of uh, the internet, of finance. So it's a huge topic. So I should probably stop here and <laughs> let you ask more questions. Well, why don't we talk about the market a little bit? So you talked through how the market has evolved. Let's try to size the market. So what do you perceive to be the market opportunity, recognizing that tens of billions of dollars in crypto have, have already flowed through DeFi applications at, at this point? The one way to think about it is how, how many users are there? And right now, again, if you abstract out, we're talking about the blockchain. This is, you know... Bitcoin and ETH and so on. This is money on the blockchain or digital value on the blockchain. So they're not that many users. <laughs> we're talking about, I feel like, a daily active users, and these numbers probably need to be fact-checked, but um, we're talking in the low millions of daily active users. I mean, that's not a lot. I mean, when you look at monthly active users, it's much more, but it, this is still a 
a relatively small niche activity when it comes to regular usage. If you think about daily active users of, um, I don't know, an iPhone, most of us are on our phones eight hours a day. In that context, there are a small number of people who are involved in this space eight hours a day, but it's very small, even, even once a day. In, in the next sort of five to 10 years, though, we think this will grow. The optimists would say maybe by 2030, there'll be at least one what's called Web3 um, app. Might be an oxymoron. There'll be at least one Web3 app on your phone, maybe, maybe more. Now, why did I call it an oxymoron contradiction? The whole point is um, with Web3, the, the term app is a very Web2 term. It's like Web1 was about the computer. It was about the desktop. Web 2 was about the smartphone. Web 3 is going to be device agnostic. It's going to be any device. Just a quick definition. Web, Web 2 is read and write. So it's your classic WhatsApp, Facebook, Snapchat. Web 3 is read, write, and own. And the own bit comes in. That's where the crypto blockchain comes in. So Web 3 is going to be, I'm not just renting space um, or giving my identity online to access services. I have, an, I have a stake, whether it's in the game I'm playing, the social media platform I'm using, I have, a, I have a stake. In that Web3 world, purists would say you don't necessarily need um, apps and whatever. But we think what you're going to end up with is, at least in the foreseeable future, the next three, five, seven years, it's kind of Web2 and a half world where we interface with DeFi. We interface with Web3 via these super convenient apps that we've all got used to in the last seven, 10 years, hence Web2 and a half. Some people call it, I recently heard someone from Binance call it CDFi, <laughs> centralized DeFi. So it's, it's, it's probably going to be hybrid because most of us, yeah, most of us are going to need that kind of handholding and convenience that we get from these centralized apps. Seems like excitement to move very quickly, which yeah. innovation tends to do. However, you can't move too quickly um, and, and leapfrog too much at the same time because, yeah. like you said, you do need the user base to come along with it um, yeah. as, as there's development. And since you keyed off of Web3 here, I wanted to I wanted to talk about Web3 versus the metaverse. Because I know you've done a lot of work in the metaverse. And oftentimes, I hear people kind of interchange the two, but recognize that they are not the same. So if you could help us draw that distinction a little bit. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a, it's a really important distinction. People often say the terms metaverse, VR, and Web3 as interchangeable or synonymous, and they totally aren't. So the way I think about it is Web3 is, and they're kind of overlapping circles. The metaverse, you can say, has a centralized aspect and a decentralized aspect. The decentralized metaverse is synonymous with Web3. The centralized metaverse can be totally Web2. So let's, let, let me unpack what I mean by centralized and decentralized. Centralized metaverse is... Just like today, we access the internet through smartphones or sometimes, particularly in the office, through desktops. The centralized metaverse we access through, through apps, through platforms, these, these very large platform companies that basically dominate society today and to some extent politics and economics. Those institutions and companies are running very fast, some of them into the metaverse. And they will give us a metaverse experience that will be very centralized. So whether it's meta platforms in Facebook or perhaps Apple or in Asia, it'll be someone like a Tencent or a Naver. They'll give us a centralized metaverse. And that might touch on Web3. There might be Web3 aspects, but it could be completely Web2. Whereas the decentralized metaverse is the blockchain-based metaverse. 
And that's all about Web3. So similar but different. I see. So when you think about the metaverse and how the the finance layer of that will will run, how do you think about unbacked crypto assets, stable coins, central bank digital currencies, or or perhaps no cryptocurrency and and or traditional money? Yeah. So it's gonna be a multiplicity of money or monetary forms in the metaverse. It's going back to what I just previously said about the centralized versus decentralized metaverse. In a decentralized metaverse, it's going to be tokens. So it's either crypto, so Bitcoin and other crypto, or it could be centralized tokens, like a stable coin, could be a big tech issued, if, if regulations allow to be seen, a corporate issued stable coin, a bank issued stable coin. I think there are one, not, not in the US, but there are one or two banks around the world beginning to explore that or issue stable coins. So the question then is, why, does, why do you need digital money? And let's just pause here because this confused a lot of people. Ron, we've had digital money for 30, 40 years. What do you mean by that? So specifically what we mean is digital money 2.0 or tokenized digital money. So not account-based. So today when I do a transaction, if I'm moving money, I'll log on, I'll go to my city app and I move money to, to you and you might be on your Chase app and that'll go via the federal infrastructure through the Fed and money will move between city and Chase. And I'll have a debit in my account and then you'll have a credit. Digital money 2.0 doesn't need to go through that account-based system. It's like if I handed you a $10 banknote here sitting opposite you, it'd be like an atomic settlement. You, you get the money immediately. There's no intermediary involved. That'll be what digital money 2.0 looks like. And, and that's better in either in the metaverse or just in, just in the internet world because I can do it atomic settlements. It's simpler, cheaper, quicker. There's no intermediaries. But there are also issues with that. Like, what if I make a mistake? Like, what if I don't like what I bought? <laughs> Which often wanna, happens. What if I want the money back? So if you're used to your credit card today, and this is a credit card company that say, well, there's a lot of protection you get. The chargeback, the insurance, the, uh, you know, something goes wrong. And there's sometimes benefits of not having absolute finality uh, in a transaction. Do you see any, any particular digital asset perhaps facilitating the growth or the expansion of the metaverse any more than another or you know there have been some conversations and conferences lately that have brought up you know if and when cbdc's come to fruition in a more you know established manner is that what the metaverse needs to really take off or for the metaverse to take off money is important but more important is the non-monetary use cases money will help facilitate that or help us pay for it but imagine we had to the zoom uh, we have vr history lesson you know, we're in Washington, so I don't know, some famous event in history. The Brits burning down the White House or the Declaration of Independence or some... And imagine the whole class gets transported to that event. Or if you're studying in India, the kind of famous Nehru midnight speech when India gets independence or like the ancient Indus Valley civilization, the whole class can be transported. You're pretty sure like for the rest of the year, they'd remember that experience. So... I'm thinking those, that, that's what's going to drive the metaverse, like the use cases in education, in health, in social, in entertainment. And as those use cases grow, more and more people are going to say, oh, this is really cool. This is not just a novelty. This is something I can do that can't really do in 2D. This 3D, maybe VR, maybe AR experience is giving me a whole new learning a whole new enjoyment and then then the money kicks in and then you go okay do i have the monetary infrastructure to pay for this 
so the kind of money will money will follow. It'll be a dance. It'll be like an interesting app will get built, interesting use case, and then then they'll build out the infrastructure. Because the biggest problem we talk about it in the report is we got to build infrastructure. It's a bit like building the I don't know the U.S. highways in the 1950s. Today, what you have is like country roads. We need to build the highways. So 5G, which is being rolled out around the world, helps. But you need to have significantly more infrastructure development to get latency down and capacity, broadband capacity out um, into the world. And it'll probably happen in parts of the US and Europe and Japan and Korea quite quickly. But in parts of parts of Africa or in rural India, this this could be the same de- debate we've had with the internet so far, right? About internet haves and internet have-nots. You're not going to be able to have VR in parts of the world because guess what? Zoom calls don't work there today. You know, 2D Zoom calls kind of will often drop if you're in parts of Africa, as you know. So that's going to be a kind of interesting challenge. Actually, if you're a policymaker, in a way, the best way you could help your kind of economy for the next 10, 20 years is just buy lots of cheap data or encourage the private sector to do that. Yeah, so it really seems like a, a partnership or a combination of, you know, of broadband or other broader technology companies and, and industries together with finance. So help us understand where in particular the financial firms play in, uh, in this role, this yeah. process. First, most important way financial services firms can help with building the metaverse or Web3 isn't that we have to become crypto native because that's often the stumbling block. People go, oh, touch crypto. The rules aren't clear, right? We don't know what the regulators think yet. Uh, we know what they think. It's evolving. First thing they need help on is it's just helping with fiat financing. So the way I think about it is I use the analogy of the highways. Okay, those are government funded, but think of the railways. Maybe that's more of a European example than a US one, but around the world between the 1830s and 1860s, railways were built, largely through private sector capital. Uh, or even international trade in the 1600s, when the Dutch and the Brits went around the world, those are privately financed. The original stock exchanges were created to fund that. Uh, then in the 1800s, limited liability companies developed to help fund the railways. This is going to need a huge amount of funding because it's going to be hundreds of billions of dollars of investment needed in chips, in capex or semiconductors. Similarly, when it comes to rolling out telco infrastructure, the market size, I mean, in the report, we talked about the potential TAM, total addressable market of the metaverse being plus or minus around 10 trillion by the end of this decade. We worked off a global GDP number of just shy of 130 trillion and sort of worked our way down and said, Digital is going to be probably a fifth to a quarter of that, the digital economy. And then within that, a third of that's going to be some way VR or AR. It doesn't have to be all VR, but that's, that's how we got to our number of, uh, in the report, we said eight to 13. We gave us that's a broad range, but it's, it's a huge number. So the banks play a role here in terms of this is going to need a lot of funding. And this, both big companies, existing large, some of the largest corporates in the world are going to require funding for these plans. And then there's a whole decentralized or blockchain aspect where the banks now need to get involved in a sort of compliant manner. They need to get involved. And the risk here is that as you get this next wave of, if you like, the third generation of the internet growing, and the banks aren't involved because they're being maybe too focused on what's already there in their portfolios, they're looking backwards, not forwards, that the banks shrink further in terms of size and relevance. So these projects will get funded. The question is, will the banks play a role in that? 
So you mentioned banks looking backwards at their portfolio of what they already have. What about, you know, many are though looking forward, asking to participate in various activities that they may recognize they they want a piece of that, right? And they want a piece of that market that's growing as opposed to some of the market that's shrinking and feel that they are prohibited from participating in it due to current regulations in in a lot of ways. So what would you say in terms of regulations or, or observations that you have that perhaps need adjusting so that banks could play? Sure. Sure. So as I, as I said, um, when it comes to the centralized metaverse, there shouldn't be any real kind of regulatory issues from a money perspective. There are regulatory issues from a content moderation perspective and hate speech and all the good and bad things that happen in internet, the Web2 internet today. So that's more of a policy challenge, I think, for the tech companies and the media companies. And necessary. for the banks, the issue is more with Web3 because that touches usually touches crypto and DeFi. And the rules are still being worked out. Um, and we're still relatively early. There are There's a wide spectrum of views inside banks, inside policymakers and officials, inside the political establishment. Think about the fabric of daily life today, the sharing economy. I mean, started by breaking rules. I don't know how many cities around the world Uber broke rules in, right? It's just, it's a matter of, and it got, over time, legalized, legitimized. Same happened to Airbnb. These are obviously massive institutions now, and we use them every day. But when they started, legally, they were sketchy. The problem when it comes to money is you can't have that kind of move fast, break things period without the regulators then shutting you down. And naturally, I totally understand why senior bankers, I mean, I'm on the sort of teenage scribbler and I run a thought leadership team, but running a bank, I can totally understand why you worry about this. Is in, you know, our regulators haven't given us the green light. And so there's this kind of tension or dance that's taking place of wanting to see where the regulators are and then moving because you can't move ahead of the regulators too much because, you know, you're opening a, it's a can of worms. Now, if you look around the world, as you guys are uh, the Global Association of the Financial Industry, you look around the world, I'm, I'm as you know, based in Dubai and the UAE. We've, it's kind of interesting, in the last six to 12 months, they've taken a concerted push to put in rules to allow or to legalize crypto. And before what would happen is that you'd have sandbox initiatives. So these companies would show up in the UAE and they'd go, great, I can be part of a program. And then they try to open a bank account. And the banks would be like, no, I can't touch you. You're crypto or crypto related. That's begun to change now in the last six to 12 months. Um, in the UAE, it already changed in Bahrain. So for some countries, they're going to make this a strategic push. Now, obviously, those countries don't want to have illegitimate business or illegal business because there is illicit activities, whether it's financing of um, you know, all kinds of nefarious activities. Now, the good thing about where we are today, 12 odd years, or is it more now since Bitcoin and crypto began? Bitcoin began is that the ability, the forensic ability for authorities with the feds and other authorities track illicit activity has improved dramatically. So frankly, if you were a bad guy, so to speak, and you were trying to move money, probably mainstream crypto or Bitcoin is the last thing you should do because they'll catch you. There certainly are, are a lot of aspects to, to be worked out still. I know some people criticize the idea of decentralized finance on its face, questioning 
just how decentralized, in fact, can anything really be at yeah. the end of the day? Yeah. Um, citing yeah. needs to, at time, you know, address imperfect code or, or again, cyber attacks yeah. or acts by criminals um, and wondering who, you know, ultimately executes the functions that are required to, to address those and does that make them a centralized party? It's a really, really interesting discussion. Like, and it kind of slightly harks back to my earlier comment around Web 2.5. It's not just that the interface, sometimes we want so centralized interface, but think about MetaMask or Infura or in a more prosaic way when it comes to crypto Coinbase. And we end up defaulting to one or two, two apps in a way to access DeFi using MetaMask wallet or a Coinbase account. Or even at the back end, which servers are they sitting on? Are they... Are they still sitting on AWS and Azure servers or Google servers? Sure, there's decentralized, uh, there's decentralized storage. There's a lot of growing, but still very small relative to the world economy projects when it comes to decentralization. Most of, most of the backend and the pipes are still very centralized. I, I would think of that as a spectrum rather than a sort of black and white that is centralized and decentralized. And you can't, it's very hard to get completely decentralized right now. I, I actually have uh, just a couple of final questions. Um, one, are, are there particular areas or particular functions in the financial system uh, that you can think of where you could see the application of a degree of decentralized finance being useful or fruitful more than others where maybe there are certain areas we shouldn't touch um, due to too significant of financial stability concerns down the line. It's a question that a lot of people have put to me um, and a question that I, I would put to you to, to think through. Well, any, any hard question, you're supposed to throw it back at the question, right? <laughs> That's a hard question. So when you said, you, you're talking about like different types of activities that are better suited for DeFi than... Yes, could be better suited for DeFi while not presenting... So much financial stability risk that we would not want that financial stability or or other kinds of risk. Not all parts of the financial industry or various processes in finance are conducted in the same way because they present different kinds of risk. So just thinking through, you know, I think through things like where could a DAO be used or would it be not appropriate for it to be used or, you know, where could decentralized finance be appropriate for perhaps you know the lending industry but sure. but in other areas not to be appropriate maybe the way to answer the question is think about market failures like what doesn't work today and whether either market failures or market gaps and say could those be solved by defi because some things work quite well if you're looking at for example domestic payments in a country like the UK, where I spend most of my life, or now even in the UAE, you have real-time payments. I mean, up to a certain amount of money, but for SMEs and individuals, it's free. And it's, it's real-time. Ditto in India, in Nigeria. If you're a client of a certain number of banks in the US, you have that as well. Pretty soon with the Fed now, you'll have it across the US. But um, in many countries, particularly outside the US, it works. I mean, like, I'm like why do I need crypto or DeFi to solve that for me if I'm sitting in London or Dubai. But if I'm sitting in Lagos or I'm sitting in Kigali and I'm trying to move money cross-border inside Africa or across borders into, say, from Houston, Texas, 
to Kigali, Rwanda. How does that work? Well, guess what? It doesn't work as well as if I'm moving money from Dubai, where I live, to London. The other way to think about it is just availability of capital. For small businesses around the world, even in the global north, even in rich countries, oftentimes, not always, sometimes a small business has a really good bank and a really good banker, but oftentimes small businesses will, will moan, they'll gripe. And because the traditional financial system doesn't always serve them as well as big businesses for obvious reasons, which we haven't probably got time to go into. Maybe DeFi is a solution there. A friend of mine recently talking me through an example of a business he's building in one particular African country. You know, he's building an SME lender and the front end is completely web too, but the back end he's trying to leverage or use DeFi because there's this amount of capital there. You know, literally trillions of dollars looking for real world applications, right? A lot of a lot of the kind of problem with DeFi crypto is it's kind of doing things with crypto. It's like it's a closed loop. It's like DeFi going to a spreadsheet and you're moving around in a closed loop. And my crypto native friends get really annoyed when I when I say that because they go, hang on, what do you guys in TradFi do? That's what you do all the time, right? Most of the stock markets trading with each other is not companies raising capital. And that's how financial systems work. There's a huge amount of liquidity that's kind of, yeah, internal, endogenous to that system uh, rather than exogenous. So maybe what would be really cool is where we can start getting external real world applications, whether it's a DeFi or NFTs or whatever. And I don't just buy the NFT because it gives me like a cool digital speculative tool, but it gives me some membership to something in the physical, I can say the real world. No, I, I understand yeah. what you mean. So in some of the economies or areas of the world that you identified where DeFi maybe is an answer, it occurs to me that digital identity is, is mm. often a construct or a big discussion in, in such areas as it is around the world, but particularly in, in some of those. Yeah. And you've discussed uh, DIDs or a, a type of identifier that enables a verifiable, decentralized digital identity and that's based on a self-sovereign identity paradigm. How would you connect that back to some of this discussion just so, to round out our, yeah. our discussion today? Yeah, it's kind of, Again, two comments on that. One is about market failure. In a lot of parts of the world, you don't have uh, good legal systems or good centralized technologies. And if you have that, that's great. So a good case study of that working, the centralized technology bit more than the legal system is India. Um, now that you have the other system for all its sort of you know flaws and so on, you have verifiable digital identity, biometrically verifiable, but the vast majority of the population has. So and that's super important because you can prove who you are. People can lend you money or you can move money or you can own assets. And a lot of parts of the world, the challenge is, and this particularly afflicts, afflicts or affects people without power. You're um, a very sad case. Like you're a recent widow. You can't prove that you have title to that home you owned in a particular country and the global south you know named countries but um they're all and not only have you just lost your husband you're just about to lose your economic livelihood at the same time now if you could have more um decentralized ways of proving identity maybe you could unlock not just demonstrate ownership of an asset that you already de facto own because of customary rights or whatever in that village you own that asset you can unlock credit and financing things that we take for granted 
I mean, imagine if you and I lived in a world where we had no access to credit and financing. Everything we bought was through savings. You know, that'd be like, we'd be back in the whatever, I don't know, 18th century or whatever. Um, you know, we wouldn't have homes because we wouldn't have a mortgage. We wouldn't have cars. We wouldn't have, you know, everything we do on credit, we wouldn't have. And that's the sad reality of a lot of, particularly people at the bottom of the pyramid in large parts of the global south. And if you can provide them with digital identity, people can then use that. Financial institutions, whether the next generation or even traditional financial, they can say, right, you're in a village in Mali. I don't know if you own anything, but hey, through this digital identity, I know you and your friends have this asset. That's a digital asset. I can create that as a digital asset. And I can then monetize. It might just be traditional. It doesn't have to be DeFi. I can lend against that. Or I can provide, and it, it just provides huge, uh, I think, huge welfare gains to the bottom of the pyramid. For sure. Um, digital identity certainly is the building block of many of innovations that we're seeing today and will be required, I think, to actually realize a lot of the gains and, and value um, that some institutions are, are looking for, in, including with respect to central bank digital currencies. I, I wouldn't be surprised if digital identity needs to get somehow uh, baked into how, how they come to fruition. But with that, I won't push you any further. Thanks very much for being with us in, um, in DC here, Ronit, for sharing your views and, and recent work on DeFi and the metaverse in particular. There is clearly so much um, still to be done in the space, and we have much to see going into the future of just how big the market will be for these innovations and exactly where they will have a place in the financial system. So thank you very much for tuning into this episode of FRT. We look forward to having you join us again on upcoming episodes. You can always check them out on the IIF website as well at IIF.com.